Thank you. Uh, thank you, thank you very much. And thanks to Jeremy, that was incredibly um, kind. Uh, I'm really nervous. I'm used to other people making my words sound much better than they are. So if you guys could please imagine that I'm uh, Colin Firth or Maggie Smith, that would be great. Um, I should first thank you guys for coming and say it's an absolute honor to be part of this, especially with the other speakers. This weekend, um, it's a privilege to do the same job as them let alone share the same stage. And I would also just like to take a moment before we kick off to remember and celebrate the great and recently departed William Goldman, who famously said about screenwriting, nobody knows anything. He said that consistently throughout all the definitive books he wrote about screenwriting. Uh, his films <laughs> will be watched forever, and that's how long he'll be missed for, too. So when I was thinking about tonight, I thought that instead of kind of a potted autobiography, what might be more useful is if I just picked one project and talked it through, warts and all, uh, all the way from the first optimistic chat to spotting the DVD in Poundland. <laughs> I, know I'm up here, I know I'm up here advertised as the writer of Mamma Mia 2, but the bodies are still warm on that, and they might be listening. So I thought I would tell you about the development and making of... Uh, the film I wrote a little while ago, The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Not hopefully in a smug way, because it eventually turned out okay, but because it was such a long and difficult journey, and there were so many times on the way when it seemed like it wouldn't. And then maybe at the end, we could see if there's anything to learn other than dumb luck and blind persistence. So it started like most of the best things do, with a nice conversation about something entirely different. The excellent producer Graham Broadbent and I were hanging out having lunch, and I was lamenting the fact that as I got older, the wisdom that I'd expected somehow to be visited upon me still seemed elusive. And I wondered aloud if when I hit my senior years, I would still be quite so clueless. And we laughed and carried on eating fish. A couple of months later, Graham called. Do you remember that conversation? He said, I think I might have something for you. Working Title had optioned a book by Deborah Mogger called These Foolish Things about a group of senior citizens who retire to India. Deborah had written a couple of drafts herself, but for whatever reason, Working Title had let it go. Actually, I say for whatever reason, but I know exactly why. It's because no one thought there was any money to be made in a film about old people. And in that no one, I totally include myself and Graham. None of us had a clue. We just liked it, which might be the first lesson. Anyway, Blueprint, Graham's company, had picked up the option. There was a director attached. Let's call him Director One, but don't look him up. That's not his name. Uh, and a start date, but they wanted a quick polish uh, before the shoot. I read the book. I read the script. I liked them both, so I went to meet the director. Director One is a lovely guy. I liked him hugely. He has a great way of giving a note. He'll say, I wonder if you feel as I do that this, this scene is running a little long. And then when you say, yeah, I do think we could cut it some, he goes, I totally agree. <laughs> His work is not known for its subtlety, and the changes he wanted to the script reflected this. He had an idea for a scene where the wheelchair of a character we all hoped would be played by Maggie Smith got attached to a bus, and she was dragged through the streets screaming as she went. I was pretty sure I'd seen something similar in Only Fools and Horses, and I didn't quite know how to make that work, but I signed up to do a six-week polish anyway. What I didn't know then was that I suck at six-week polishes, or polishes in general. They require a specific and forensic skill to spot key flaws in the script as it stands and to fix them and only them. 
Uh, a good example of this is Bill Nicholson's brilliant pass on David Franzoni and John Logan's script for Gladiator, which introduced the notion that Maximus's goal in life is not power, but revenge for the death of his beloved wife, uh, giving the film an emotional heft that was a huge part of its success. It turned out I couldn't do that. It turned out I felt I had to retype every line and rewrite most of them, including even the title. So the result was that after my allotted six weeks, I gave the producer and director the first 28 pages of the film. I thought maybe we could have a look at the first four or five now, which actually didn't really change from then to when we shot them. And thankfully, to my relief, there were some laughs. Uh, Graham was very kind about the pages, uh, if clearly and rightly frustrated that there were so few of them. The extreme weather conditions in India mean that you can only really shoot there between October and March. And so because of my incompetence, we were going to miss our window that year. It also meant that we lost director one, who departed for Hollywood, where I'm sure he's totally agreeing with people even now. <laughs> Graham and I made a list for his replacement, at the head of which was John Madden, whose work we greatly admired. But he passed. So we moved only one place further down the list to director two. Director two is a lovely guy. I liked him hugely. But as he warned me himself, he's famously indecisive and terrible at expressing himself which are unusual qualities for a director and <laughs> ones that make for an interesting collaboration. At one point, he gave me a note so self-evidently baffling, he could only shrug and go, even I don't know what I mean by that. <laughs> so thanks for that. But the script got better gradually. Director 2 wanted it to be less of an ensemble and more focused on one character, so I dutifully did that even while disagreeing. But on the good side, he hated the idea of a wheelchair being dragged by a bus, so out that came. And eventually, we had something ready to go to cast which is a thing, casting. You might think that it's no part of a screenwriter's purview, but you'd be very wrong. Today, I have no doubt Shakespeare would be asked if he could punch up Ophelia to help get someone relevant, and just think about whether she might be American. <laughs> she could be studying abroad, Hamlet does. The unavoidable fact is that you can't make your film without the acting people that the finance people think that the watching people will pay real money to see. In our case, though everybody doubted that we'd sell a single ticket, it was clear that to even have a shot, there was only one person at the top of that list, the goddess that is Dame Judi Dench, around whom we should, of course, erect railings. But Judy is fantastically loyal to people with whom she's enjoyed working with before, and that doesn't leave a lot of time on her dance card for new partners. So I did a sneaky thing. I happened to be reading Richard Ayer's diaries about his tenure as head of the National Theatre, in which he talks about directing Judy as Gertrude in a production of Hamlet. On the first night, she sends him a card with a quote from Great Expectations, what larks pip. Anyway, a couple of weeks uh, after we sent the script out, uh, Judy's daughter Finty was reading it one morning at breakfast, and she got to page 18, read that line, and said, oh, you must do this, Mum, she talks just like you. Um, actually, as a postscript, the day we shot that scene several years later, I was sitting with Judy waiting uh, while the camera crew got set up. And she turned to me and said, it's funny, you know, because I do actually say this in real life. <laughs> Which was obviously my cue to go, yeah, I know, and I did a sneaky thing. But instead I went, really? I had no idea. <laughs> but there's maybe another lesson, which is right to get a cast, whatever that takes. So we had Judy, we had the great Penelope Wilton, we had some momentum, and the window for shooting in India was just coming around again. We all felt pretty good. And then to everyone's surprise, most of all his own, I think, Director Two suddenly made a decision he didn't want to do the movie. 
Since I'd spent much of the previous six months suppressing the impulse to bury my burrow in his neck, I wasn't entirely disappointed by his decision. But it did mean that another window slipped by, that we wouldn't be making the film that year, and that we lost our cast, which is not good. Nobody was getting any younger. Graham and I regrouped, reminded ourselves that we'd actually always wanted John Madden, and now we had a much better script we were certain he'd like. So we sent it to him again. He passed. Director 3 is a lovely guy. I liked him hugely. <laughs> His background was mainly in comedy, in quite broad comedy. So while I tried my best to write the film he wanted, we weren't a great fit, apart from the day when I heard myself suggesting a scene where Maggie Smith's wheelchair is dragged along by a bus. <laughs> he loved that. He also thought we should focus less on one character and more on the ensemble, bless him. And so through the third year, we worked in reasonable harmony. I was getting tired by now, and at those times, we require the inspiration to come from our collaborators, which feeds the energy back into us. That wasn't really happening with Director 3, but after several more drafts, we had a new script to go out. And it took us to the next level, because Fox Searchlight uh, rang to say that they liked it. This was excellent news, as they're good people who make great films. They were lovely about the script, although, like us, they acknowledged that it was a commercial risk making a film about elderly people in the third act of their lives. Unlike us, their solution was to suggest that the leads should be played by Pierce Brosnan and Emma Thompson. <laughs> this was a tricky moment. I wrote a passionate letter saying that those actors would pass and they'd be right to because I didn't know what that hotel was. If they didn't want to make this film, I totally got it. After all, no one else did. But if they tried to turn it into something else, then it really would have no chance at all. Uh, the point was taken, thank God, and we moved on. Searchlight's next action, I agreed with slightly more to gently nudge aside director three. When that deed was done, we all had a meeting and talked excitedly of John Madden. Finally, all the elements had lined up perfectly. We had an improved script, some excellent casting options, and we were now financed by a studio. So we sent it to him, and he passed. <laughs> As did another Indian window and another year. Director four, I have to say, I liked somewhat less than hugely. <laughs> This was at least as much my fault as his. I was getting sick of the film by now. A six-week polish had taken nearly three years, and I didn't have much left to offer. Also, Director 4 had absolutely no interest in it being a comedy, which on the good side meant that we lost a scene where a wheelchair is dragged along behind the bus. But also, we lost pretty much every other joke as well. He also thought it should be less of an ensemble piece and focus more on the lead character. But despite my issues with his vision of the film, I look back on my behavior in the meetings at this time with some shame, as I was so unhelpful and truculent as to be actually juvenile, although he started it. <laughs> He's smart, though, Director 4, and there were some good things in the script. There were enough things for Judy to come back in, single-handedly torpedoing the studio's hopes of a younger cast, because who can say no to the great dame? Pep Wilson came back, too, and others arrived, such as Tom Wilkinson and Celia Imrie. And there was a glorious day that I got a message I would come to regard as typical from Maggie Smith, that she would do the film on the condition I made it a bit better. <laughs> but he was tricky and fussy, and a research trip to India revealed a fatal mismatch uh, between him and that glorious country. As everyone here trying to make a film knows, it's hard enough to get the rock up the hill. But if there's a lack of conviction anywhere about what you're doing, you really have no chance. As the window approached yet again, I don't think anyone really believed we were going to go there and shoot a movie. So we didn't. And that was the end of Director 4. <laughs> Churchill defines success as the ability to move from one failure to another without loss of enthusiasm. <laughs> this is a standard I spectacularly failed to meet when Graham called me early the next year. So, he said, about Marigold. And I just couldn't. 
The horse is dead. I told him, stop flogging it. It's an ex-horse. It has ceased to be. He was, as all great producers have to be, remorseless as water torture. I was thinking maybe we should offer it to John Madden, were his last words, <laughs> before I hung up. Two weeks later, he called again. John, or as I like to call him, Director Five, was in. He'd read the latest draft, and while he missed some of the jokes, he'd found it deeper and more truthful than any he'd read previously. So there's another lesson here, I think. What I'd thought for the previous three months had been only backward steps, turned out to be partly sideways ones, offering at the very least a better chance to move forward. But I was done. I was very clear about that. Thrilled about John. Loved the idea of the film he might make, but the script needed new energy, and I simply didn't have it. Just come and meet him, said Graham. He's lovely. You'll like him hugely. So I went, and we met, and I explained why I was extricating myself from the project. There was nothing left that could happen between these characters, nowhere they could go, no arrangement of words in the English language that I hadn't had them say to each other a thousand times over. <laughs> I was written out. It was the first and only time in our friendship that John completely ignored what I had to say. And as he started to talk and talk about the film he wanted to make, I felt sufficiently buoyed by his inspiration, enthusiasm, and belief in me to agree to do just one more month's work on the film. Just over a year later, we wrapped production <laughs> in Jaipur. I had been at John's side throughout the whole process. He believes that the director's most important relationship on a film is not with the lead actors, the cameraman or woman, or even the editor. He believes it's with the writer, and he proved that every day. It's useless you knowing that, because he's literally the only director that ever lived that feels that way. So work with him, I guess, is the lesson here. He also wanted the script to focus less on the lead character and be more of an ensemble, and I never even bothered to pitch the wheelchair behind the bus. But maybe the best example of his touch and tone was what he got me to write for the ending. For years, the big climax of the script had been Bill Nye running through the crowded streets of Jaipur through the Holy Festival, where people throw paint dust at each other. He arrives back at the hotel looking like a very handsome rainbow, comically out of breath as he tries to make a passionate speech to Judy, which somehow does the trick and she falls into his multicolored arms. I loved it. All the directors had loved it. John didn't. Let's take it down a little, dear boy, he said. Less running, I said, and less paint, he replied. I rewrote it. Less romance, was his note this time. I rewrote some more, then some more. Just less, he said. What do you want us to talk about, I asked. Having a cup of tea? Perfect, he replied. So I wrote this. The cameras rolled on draft 38 of Marigold Hotel, and there were a couple more during the shoot itself. But the work paid off. We had ridiculous fun making the film. Judy actually described the experience as life-changing. And when you're 78, to describe anything at all as life-changing is just massively cool. And then to our astonishment, people went to see it. And they saw it again and again. We had a theory that older people went for repeat viewings because they'd already forgotten the jokes. <laughs> so they could laugh every time as the first time, like goldfish. <laughs> the thing about a zeitgeist is that unless you're really smart, which I think we've established I'm not, you don't see it coming. But if you're lucky enough to be on that wave, to be giving people something they want and need right at that moment, you really just have to not screw it up. It's not for me to judge whether we just didn't screw it up or did any better than that. I remember when I got home from India, friends would ask what I'd been doing out there. And I described the film by saying, Judy Dench and Bill Nye fall in love while Maggie Smith wanders around being racist in the background. <laughs> and everyone of every age was like, I'll see that. So maybe all the work, all the drafts, all the deadlines and director's notes mattered way less than the fact that it was just a brilliant idea of Deborah's in the first place, with a wonderful cast in a fabulous location. Or maybe, just maybe, in this business where we're all so endlessly frustrated by the process, this film is an example of the process actually working 
with every iteration of the script that it went through, just leading up to it being ultimately the best version of itself. I like to believe the latter, partly because we all worked so hard, but mainly because that means it can happen. And that, I guess, is the final lesson. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I do Thanks want again, to ask. Um, Thank you again, by the way. That was lovely. If directors one, two, three, or four could identify themselves at this point, if they're in the room, I can give you that. <laughs> um, well, that was brilliant. Thank you. Um, the most charming man in London, <coughs> and uh, the wittiest, which is so clear now. Um, I looked up your career. We've known each other for quite a we long have, time, we have. and in fact, I have to admit that. Every time they offered it to John Madden and he turned it down, it was because he was attached to something I was It was, it was, your, it was always your fault. I was going to talk about it. Which that. has not yet been made. <laughs> um, so that's my pain as well as, as, well as his. Um, I'm interested, you, will you now only direct the films that you write? You, through your career, you've done a bit of both. You've written scripts for other people. You've written scripts for yourself. Can you talk a bit about the differences? The difference is, you know, sort of budget and, and <clears throat> scope, I think. I mean, I, I, I wrote a film that the director was made, and I, I didn't massively like what was done with it. And so, um, and so I started writing something on spec, and I wasn't really sure why, because I couldn't afford to. But I just, halfway through it, I was like, oh, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to attach myself to this. And if nobody wants to make it with me, I totally get it. But if they do want to make it, then, then they're stuck with me. And so I did that, and we made it, and it was really cheap, and, and this lovely producer, Barnaby Thompson, backed me. And so then I'd, I'd done that. And, but anything that was... Which one was that? That was called Imagine Me and You. Right. And it was tiny, and it's, it, you know, I'm proud of it. And, um, that's the one about the two girls? That's the one about two girls, yeah, um, inadvertent <coughs> lesbian romance, yeah. Was it inadvertent? I well, did actually it, want no, to I'll ask... I'll tell you what, if you got, it was, because... I've I, only just I, watched it. I had this idea where I was thinking, what's the worst place to fall in love at first sight? It would be walking up the aisle to your, to, to, at your own wedding. You'd see someone. And I thought, well, that's quite funny. I'll give that a go. So I started writing it, and so the actress, the, the lead character, walks up the aisle, turns to her left, sees this guy, and... Uh, you know, and is, you know, ensorcelled by him, but carries on, obviously, and gets married. But then as soon as they met at the reception, it was like, oh, they know exactly what's happened, and it's just going to be an 80-page guilt fest before the ending. Do you know what I mean? And so I just junked it. I thought, well, that's not going to work. It can't. It was a quite neat idea, but it can't work. And then a couple of months later, I was like, actually, if they're the same sex, then maybe it's more interesting because they might just mistake that. If they hadn't been gay before, they might just mistake that for the thrill of friendship. And so that's how it became an inadvertent lesbian romance. Did the producers have anything to say about uh, that at they, the time? Uh, they were, they, no, it was, I mean, Barnaby was great. He, that was, he appreciated, you know, no, they, everyone backed it. It was, it was uh, I love women too, so why uh, yeah, not? Yeah, it was, it, was it was an odd thing to direct the sex scenes, though. That was a strange thing. And did it have a, um, repercussions on the box office? Uh, it did, yeah. It didn't do well, which is not... Um, it didn't incredibly... No, Fox Searchlight bought it, which is very nice of them, and then absolutely nobody went to see it. But it, I, still, I still get letters from young people coming out asking for my advice. Um, so it's sort, of, it's sort of lived on. I mean, the bar is so low for gay movies, unfortunately, certainly for lesbian movies. It's getting higher now uh, that it's on... You know, it's done OK. Yeah, mm. good. 
Good. Okay. It lives. So going on from there on your direction. So yeah. So then I so then I would just sort of alternate. I'd write things for other much better people than me. But the next thing I wrote that I really loved was a book called Now Is Good, or the book's called Before I Die by Jenny Downham. That again is really small, but I, I got to direct myself for Graham Broadbent. Um, but anything that was bigger than two people in a room or a really small budget, I just figured would be beyond me and for something else, someone else. And I was very comfortable with that. And indeed, that was absolutely true when I got the gig for Mamma Mia. It was just as a writer. And if I'd known I was going to be directing, I would never have written a dance sequence on 14 boats. That was always <laughs> going to be someone else's problem. And it was only a couple of months into you know, uh, pre-production that it, I think they must have offered it to everybody else. <laughs> and then I was left standing. So um, then they offered it to me. But uh, now that I've done that, uh, it's pretty big. I, I don't know. I mean, whatever, you know, whatever. That, that was. Um, uh, not the, the, the last movie before you directed uh, Mamma Mia. So in between, there have been other in between, people. I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm really, I love collaborating. I love working <clears throat> for people that are much better than I am, which is many of them. And so if I've got things to learn, then I'll do that. So whatever, you know, whatever the next thing that comes you to You don't do one for them, one for me. I'll do one for anyone, really, that wants it, yeah. <clears throat> and did you ever learn uh, directing? Did you ever... Well, being on set, I was on set every day for both the Marigold movies, and every day on Mamma Mia, there was something I would say or do where I was like, that's John, that's School of Madden. You know, I would be, you know, the way that I talked to the studio or the way I would talk to the actors or the way that I would deal with the problem was always, I think, oh, that's John. I mean, every day. So it was incalculably... I've been really fortunate in that everything that I've written, the directors have let me be part of and stay on set. The one that I didn't like... I opted not to be on set anymore because I was just getting in the way because I wanted it to go a different direction and that, then you're just left with a mishmash so you're better off hoping that at least he knew what he was doing. Do you know what I mean? And so, but otherwise I've always been part of everything that's, that's been made and so I've just got to watch and study and hang out. And is it the best of all possible world, worlds to be a writer who's been invited on set by a very good director that you can then look over the shoulder of and say... Yeah, it's the best of all possible. I mean, to be in India with those guys saying, making your lines better and to be with John and, you know, there's always, there's 5%. If it's only 5%, there's 5% that you go, you know what, I would do that differently. But if it's that low and there's 80% that is so much better than I could have imagined, then you take it every time. There's 15% or 10%, sorry, that I would do the same. Then, then that's, the, that's an easy bargain to do. But now, I mean, I don't know whatever's next. I don't know what's yeah. next. Yeah. So this is not an inevitable journey towards you being just a director? No. no You're not no, going to no. ever direct other people's work? I mean, I, I, you know, I mean I'm now sent, because Mamma Mia did okay. I'm, I'm sent other people's, <laughs> I'm sent other people's scripts now for the first time. And so, uh, but um, I, yeah, who knows? If I read one that I thought I could do, then I'd be thrilled. Looking at your career, because, um, Having just done one project in your in your lecture, let's look back at your career. You you started out um, like everyone here, I suppose, in television. Yeah, I wrote a play, and the BBC came to see it. Someone from the BBC came to see it, and it was back in the days when they were just more. They had less pressure on them, and so they gave me six thousand pounds and told me to write an hour long or seventy minute. It was a screen two. It was called. It was a single drama, and I started writing something horribly pompous that I thought should be made, some state of the nation thing. And mm. after a few weeks, I called up the head of the BBC and said, I need to come and see you, because I basically hadn't slept. For, I was just having a panic attack. And I went to see him and said, look, I've spent most of your money, but what I haven't spent, I'll give you back, because I can't do this. I'm not a writer. 
And he said, tell me about the thing you're writing. And I pitched it, and he's like, well, that's terrible. I was like, yeah, no, it's awful. <laughs> and he said, you don't, how could you know anything about any of that? And you need to write about something you know about. And I said, I'm 22. I don't know anything about anything. And he said, what did you do last night? And I said, I took a truckload of ecstasy. And so he said, then I'll have a script about that in, on my desk in six weeks. And so I wrote that, and it got made. Uh, luckily, and Pete Catania directed it. It went on to do great things. And so, um, yeah, that was how I kicked off, yeah. It seems to me as though look at looking, I haven't seen this work, but looking at your um, IMDb page, that you started out in TV doing very sort of heavy, real-life, ecstasy-taking yeah. dramas, yeah. Um, uh, which is very interesting for someone who's ended up in how you would describe it, I don't know, but romantic comedy possibly. Um, was that, because you went on from that then a very, quite a, um, what was the, the, um, the, the, the TV film that Chiritel was in? I wrote In Your Dreams that uh, Tandy, my wife, was in, uh, that was about date rape. And then I wrote a film called It Was an Accident that Chiritel was in that was also quite hard hitting. So, um, yeah, I did, did you hear that? It was date rape. He just skimmed over that. Uh, um, <laughs> Yeah. Sort of very hard-hitting, yeah. uh, dramatic yeah. things that you're attracted to as a writer. Yeah, I mean, I'm attracted to any story that I think I might be able to give something to, I guess. You never quite know. And then you just... I, I'm, I'm more attracted to themes, I think. It was, wasn't really about date rape. I was fascinated by lies. It was actually the story of a date that leads to it and whether or not, you know, whether or not it ends with a rape. So it's, it was less about the court case afterwards and more about the date and signals and misunderstandings. Mm. And uh, now it's good. I knew that a friend of mine had died, and I knew that at some a few years before. But I knew I wanted to write about grief. At some point, I wanted to, and I was sort of looking, not actively looking. But when the book came, I was like, "That's something that I want to say." And so it's often something that I want to explore. And Marigold was, you know, the same as I tried to say. It was something that I was pondering, as I think I must be turning forty, maybe, and just thinking about mortality or getting older or whatever, and then, and then you know, then Marigold came along. So it's, I don't, I'm just, whatever I think I might be able to do. I thought Now is Good was terrific. Made, Thank you very much. Made yeah. me cry several times, in fact. Okay, great. <laughs> and it's a weird, aggressive thing to want people to cry. I used to sit at the back <laughs> of the cinema, and when their hands went up, you got you. That's a strange place to be. Is it the case that almost all of the things that you've written are about women initially? Yeah, it's in, weird, in isn't it? That's no, I don't know why that is, but it's often, it's almost entirely true that there's a female lead, and in the case of Mamma Mia, about eight female leads. Um, yeah, I don't know why. They're all written for Tandy? They're all written for, Tandy was gonna do Imagine Me and You, and I impregnated her by mistake, <laughs> and so uh, she couldn't do it. Um, but hopefully one day we'll work together. Maybe, maybe not mistake. Yeah. Um, so is comedy for you a way of, um, making all of these really very dramatic issues that, that are in your head somehow palatable for an audience? Is it, does, it, does it connect in some way? Because otherwise, so. I mean, John, John used to refer to Marigold as a melancholy comedy. I mean, I said the trailer was, I remember watching the trailer with absolute horror, because it's very sprightly and it's all the gags, and I totally see why they, they did that, and that's, and, you know, it sells the movie and all that stuff, but it didn't seem to me to be the tone of the movie. And even Mamma Mia, I, Killed off Meryl, um, and so and you know and that was my choice. That was a deliberate thing, and I wanted you know to hopefully get people moved at the end of that, even though it's obviously meant to be a you know sunburst of a holiday experience. Um, so yeah, I mean I, I th if you can sweeten the pill slightly, but if you can say things that matter to people, well, 
making them laugh, then you're ahead of the game, I think. Tell us a bit about Mamma Mia. Obviously, everyone's here, I'm sure, has seen Mamma Mia too. Um, looking at the writing credits, it's a yeah. story by you, a story by Richard Curtis, yeah. and screenplay by you, yeah. songs by ABBA. Is, is yeah. that about it? That's about it. How, how, did it, how did it... Well, Richard, Judy Kramer, the wonderful producer, saw Richard at a party, and it had been, I think, at that point, it had been eight years since the first movie, and they were just stuck and had, didn't know a way to go forward. And she uh, asked Richard if he was around and available and had any time. And he said, I'm not, but I know somebody cheaper. <laughs> and so Judy called me. And I went to see her and we chatted for a bit. And, um, and, and then, you know, and, and I pitched a version. She said, go away and have a think. And I came back and I pitched the version, which is basically Godfather 2, a steal from Godfather 2, which is that it'd be a, both a prequel and a sequel. And also I said, we should kill Meryl. We should just deal with the absence at the heart of it. If she's not going to be in the movie that much, we should kill her off. And I think, again, because I was cheap and they were desperate, it was like, OK, you have a go. <laughs> and so then, um, but it was amazing. I mean, I, I got the job in September. I delivered, it was the opposite to this. I delivered the draft on Christmas Eve, and it was greenlit on January the 2nd wow. to shoot in July. Yeah. And so it was a very... I mean, there's nothing like... The, writing the sequel for Marigold 2 was kind of this, nearly the same. It's a lovely feeling when the rock is already rolling down the hill. It's a lovely feeling when people actually want to make the film rather than trying mm. to convince them that they want to make the film. And so, um, yeah, then it was just a lovely process. I mean, I loved writing it. The process of writing it, Richard and I went to his caravan. He had three days, and we went... He has a caravan in the field near his home in the countryside, and there's no internet. And we stuck up our favorite 30 ABBA songs on the wall. And I went with a sort of rough plot and rough idea, but we basically just tried to zigzag from song to song and to make each other laugh. And if I could make him laugh, that's a golf shot, basically. I would, uh, and then I went away and wrote it, yeah. Um, it, it is a dream, a dream story, that. Yeah, so it was the, yeah. And then making it was a dream. I mean, it was ridiculous, and, you know, Cher was in it. <laughs> <laughs> so is, um, what is your skill? What do you consider your skill to be? Is it, oh God. Um, <laughs> as a writer, is it, because um, it feels as though you're, to me anyway, we've never worked together, an annoyingly, but. Um, it's your fault, by the way. Hopefully it's at some, begged, at, at some begged point. I've begged and But you can make everything funny and charming and emotional. Is it about the story? Is it finding the structure of the story that takes the time? Well, thank you, firstly. Um, I've no, it's absolutely not for me to say. I, I don't think I'm good at story or structure. I think if there's anything, I, and I don't, uh, I've no idea. I can't answer that. But thank you very much. But I can, I can imagine that the pleasure of being offered Mamma Mia is you've got these characters, you've got these songs, now make it all work. Yeah, that was a blast. Um, I mean, just ridiculous fun. And I remember, still my beating vagina. It's still my beating vagina. Uh, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie, but there was... At the end, we had like four songs left on the wall and that we couldn't get in. We just couldn't crowbar them in. And I was like, and it was literally, it was, we were just like finishing for the, you know, for the three days. And I was like, all right, here's one. Uh, we have to drop into the, we need a guy, we need an older guy. He works at the hotel. He's the hotel manager, that's what he is. He's, uh, and we give him a comedy name, Cien Fuego says, I've got a joke about that. And I'm just, and Richard's just listening, and I was just going, okay, so we have to drop into the fact that Ruby, Cher's character, has her heart broken many years ago. We have to hide that fact, we have to do this. And, and then at the end, he looks up, he shouts Ruby, and she turns to him and goes, Fernando? 
And Richard <laughs> just fell off the chair laughing. And so, and I thought, that's, you know, so, and it just yeah. stayed true to that night. So if you can, you know, that's the fun. I mean, some songs you kind of go, okay, we're stuck now, where's the song, how can we get there? And some you write backwards from. Mm. And some, I mean, Mamma Mia, for example, uh, Lily James has just had her heart broken, and we're looking at the songs on the wall, and the first line of Mamma Mia is, I've been cheated by you since I don't know when. You're like, oh, brilliant, we can now do that one. And so some just sort of, if you're writing well, or you, yeah. if, you know, good things lead to good things. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, a yeah. weird way that yeah. that happens. Yeah. There's a great um, bit in Alan Partridge where he's talking about anagrams of his name. And, uh, and people are going, and anal dirge prat is one. <laughs> and in that episode, the beginning of that episode, he's just found out that his band leader, Glenn Ponder, is gay, and he's horrified by it. And he turns to Glenn and goes, do you have an anagram of your name, Glenn? And Glenn goes, porn legend. <laughs> and, and it's a brilliant joke. And I don't know that they thought of Glenn Ponder. I think they only found that afterwards. But it's because Glenn Ponder was a brilliant name that it gave that second gift. You know what I mean? And so when you're doing things I well... I don't believe that. They wrote that name. You think they, they think created they that name. Porn legend? But, yeah, yeah, really? Absolutely. I don't think they did. But you may be right. Well, but my theory is if you're doing things well, then it keeps coming. And... Very luckily, and obviously because of Richard Nabbard, Mamma Mia was that for me. For me, the second one was better than the first, I have to say. Thank I, you. I, I really enjoyed it I, much I, more. I, I'm more interested in the story of the, the, the young guys than the older guys. Um, but then uh, you've already been rude about one of them in your lecture. I shouldn't be rude about the others too. Uh, no, you can be rude about um, uh, So um, does that mean, have you ever written... Uh, Scripts for Hollywood? Have you ever? Yeah, other, I wrote a film for Tom Hanks for a long time that nearly happened. Um, and I'm, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I have. And then they nightmare don't, stories? They don't happen. Have you, have you any nightmare stories about? It's just the usual, it's all, it's all nonsense. You have to put <laughs> up with all kinds of nonsense. I mean, it, it's tricky, you know, so there's a lot of money, and the mm. more money there is, the more fear there is. And so, even though it, you know, was a nice ride and the studio were basically lovely, it's still, there's a lot of stuff to deal with. But, um, if you try and not view it as a nightmare, but just comedy, if you think everything, the, the worst meeting you've had, you just think, in 10 minutes, I'm going to be having a cup of tea with someone I like, telling them the story, and we'll be laughing. Then you'll get through it. And Mamma Mia, I just refuse to allow anybody to be in a bad mood at any point, because if you're not enjoying that, you should get out of show business. So I just, it was a preposterously happy set. And so plain sailing from here on? No sailing at all. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, whatever. Um, I'm just here before inviting you guys to ask questions, so um, maybe you should chip in at this point. And we have, I think, microphones um, around. Um, if you put up your hands, and I'll point to um, you on the on the left there. Yeah, if you pass the mic along. Hi. So, what would you uh, say to someone who's trying to get into the Is industry? How would you? I don't know. How would you? phrase uh, pitching yourself to someone asking for a job? How would I pitch myself to someone asking for a job? Oh, God, I, 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 you can, can't you tell by now? I'm like the worst person to ask ever about that. Um, I, I don't pitch yourself. Do something brilliant. Be brilliant. You look great. Just write something cool. Whatever you're trying to do, just do it really well. Be impressive, and then you'll, be, you'll succeed. You'll be fantastic. Perfect advice. And then, yes, the girl next to you. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask you what advice you give to people writing ensemble scripts. So, obviously, Best Exotic Margot Hotel I ended up uh, lesser about focus on the lead character and more of an ensemble piece. Yeah. And Mamma Mia as well. 
Um, the advice I would give is to try and... My wife was in a film called Crash, which, uh, and she won a BAFTA. She's in four scenes. But because every scene she's in, she has something to do. And so when you have characters that have less screen time, even if it's Marigold and it's not exactly you know, the, most, the biggest, most emotional thing, just make sure that when they're in a scene, they're running a scene. That give them all, because so like I say, getting cast is really crucial, but also just for people to enjoy it. Make sure that when that character is, is that character's story, that they get, you're getting the most out of that story that you can possibly get. That would be my advice. And also, when you're in the story, stay in the story. I think in an early draft, or even when we were in India, I'd written it and we'd kind of, we'd see Maggie going somewhere and then we'd cut to somebody else and then we'd see Maggie arrive there. And John was like, this isn't working, this isn't going to work. And if you see Maggie going somewhere, you want to see Maggie get there and you want to see Maggie have the scene. And so don't feel the need. You can do the thing he does in Magnolia every now and then where you kind of, and we did it and I ripped it off, obviously in Marigold, Judy Dench has a diary entry and we could kind of go around everybody and check in on them. But when you're with someone, be really with them and make them own that part of the movie. Um, could you pass the mic? This, uh, you've got it. Good. Um, I wondered if you ever go back to old projects that either you've abandoned because they weren't working or they just weren't right for the time um, or, or ideas that perhaps you haven't really sort of worked on. There's a really great director and he gave me this tip actually after Mamma Mia that he uh, had been in Hollywood and trying to get things made and they hadn't made them and then he made a movie that did really well and he was like, oh now this is my chance because I have kudos and cachet and I have some hand and now they'll make those movies and he went back and they still didn't make those movies. And he thought, actually, maybe they were right. Maybe it was just the movies and not me. And so I think, I mean, like with this, you know, I really thought I was done. And it was obviously John's inspiration and brilliance that kept me going. But at a certain point, if things die, there's a great Groucho Marx line, when 10 people tell you you're dead, lie down. <laughs> and sometimes there's a reason things don't happen. Sometimes it's unjust. And I don't think I've written anything that I think, and that would have been great. And if I did, maybe I would. But... I generally, I tend to agree with the people that... The, the crap thing about film is that... And TV is brilliant. When they don't make your TV show, they just tell you really quickly. But film is the incredibly slow death. You don't even realise that you've died till about six years afterwards. And so by that time, you're so heartily sick of it that you wouldn't revive it even if someone paid for it. You started out doing serious television, didn't you? I wrote Grange Hill. Grange yeah, Hill. Yeah, I yes. did. I was Talk part of the. Uh, yeah, just it was my first gig coming out of, and it was hilarious. I loved it. We all just sat around. And had you written about. before that? Were you? A I'd written a play at college? Cambridge that was yeah. that, that the guy had seen, and um, and and we put on. And um, actually, my other bit of advice to you about starting out, uh, I was really lucky. Brilliant, Jez Butterworth, who wrote The Ferryman, directed my first play, and Ben Miller, the brilliant comedian, was in it. Mm. And so, when you're starting out, find good people and glom onto them and stick with them for as long as you can, and they'll take you forward. Um, Very good advice. Look at Richard Curtis and... and that's, Richard, that's what I've done with Richard. I'm glomming <laughs> to Richard. That's how I roll. Um, one over here. You stole the mic, but you can still ask your question. Hi, all. Um, is there... I, I don't know if you're writing now, but is there a particular theme that you're thinking about in your head that you would love to write about or to see more stories about? Oh, that's nice. No, I'm not, I'm not actually... Writing now, my wife is directing a movie, and so I've got all our children. <laughs> and so um, uh, I'm kind of looking for the next thing. But um, no, I don't, I don't know. But thank you for that. I'll think about what that might be. Jeremy. I'll first of all thank you for a beautiful lecture. Um, absolutely wonderful. You, you mentioned uh, in the Q&A that structure is incredibly difficult. I don't know a screenwriter who, if they're honest, doesn't admit that. 
Can you talk a little bit about your process, the actual process that you go through when you're preparing to write, when you're writing, and whether that differs according to each project? How you actually get yourself in front of the screen and how you battle with structure, because it is a great challenge, whereas dialogue is often a talent that can't be taught. What do you do when you're working your way through structure? How do you, how do you actually do the process of writing? Well, my daily structure is I take mm. the kids to school and come home, make a cup of tea, and yep. try and read the entire internet before I start <laughs> working. And on a more macro sense, I don't, most writers, and they absolutely should, uh, write treatments. And I don't. I have a, I'm not sure if it's because I'm lazy or because I like the idea that I'm surprised by if, if I, I think that if I'm surprised, then hopefully somebody else will be. There was, when I was doing Marigold 2, there's a bit where uh, I was giving John and Graham the pages as we were going along because we were going to be shooting it you know, that, that, in that window. And I gave them up to page 60, and there's a moment where someone goes into Judy Dench's room and comes out and goes, she's not here, she's gone. And then I gave it to them, and they were like, brilliant, where's she gone? I was like, no idea. <laughs> so, um, but it seemed like a good you know, bit. <laughs> And so, um, but the brilliant thing, I mean, adaptations are great, true stories are great. I mean, the, the joy of knowing where you're going is uh, fabulous. But in general, I just um, busk it. I think it's headlights in the dark for me. Like, you can only see the next 20 yards. But by now, I've done it often enough to know that if I just keep going, I'll get somewhere in the end. And then, obviously, that entails a lot of rewriting. By the time I hand in my first draft, I've rewritten the first draft many times, but it does mean I can't jump forward, which people like to do. Sometimes if you're struggling, writers I know that if they're struggling writing a scene, they'll just jump forward and write the ending, which they know, and it'll keep them in the mood and in the spirit, and I can't do that because I have no idea what's going to happen. But um, I couldn't say it works for me, but I'm sitting here, so. Do you do that thing that Richard um, always does, apparently, which is he, he saves a little bit that he knows what he's going to do next for the next morning, so that yeah, he does. No, I rewrite. I mean, I rewrite and I listen to music, which really helps. If you listen to the same, if you find an album, and it's really random, and sometimes it can take a while to find. That's so, I but find that you, so odd, and he does. He listens to pop music all the time. He listens to one song, actually, Everything But The Girl. He's one song he did Love Actually to. But I, for me, it's normally one album, or I do a playlist uh, for a movie, and that's really helpful. You can listen to that, and it'll just put you back into the emotional so space. You put together a playlist I in the mood of the Yeah, in the mood of the thing. Trying. And sometimes those songs end up being, you know, now it's good, actually, the playlist is pretty much went straight into the film, but others obviously not. Marigold 2, I got to use Marigold 1, Tom Newman's brilliant score, so that was really lovely. Yeah. But I begin, you know, it's only at about half past four when self-disgust overcomes me and I start working, <laughs> uh, that I, I tend to just rewrite uh, what, I'd, um, what I did the day before. But no, Richard's brilliant. He does the thing, oh, I'm looking forward to writing that, I'll leave it. But I don't have that willpower. If there's anything I know how to write, then I'll <laughs> write it straight away. Good, 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 good. I'd like to say thank you for the lecture as well. I really enjoyed it. Um, I wanted to ask a question about breaking the rules and, and how you do that or have the balls to do it. I, I saw a, a, a BBC drama about a year ago. And it was a BBC hour, and suddenly there was like a nine-and-a-half-minute scene of just two people talking. Uh, it was a priest, and a, a woman came in and confessed she was going to kill herself. But I did think that if you'd have showed that script to someone, a script editor, they'd have said, you can't possibly get away with this, but it was brilliant. Yeah. Do, you, do you have that? I'm probably not good enough to write a scene that good, but I, I, you do. I mean, you, you have to just commit to what you're... And if you've done something... I mean, I don't have any fear. If I thought that was how it should work best, then I'd do my best to do it. And then you rely on, you rely on a strong producer, you rely on strong people around you, and also the people that... You may be right, but the people that make things, you know, really try, and they really want... Nobody sets out to make a bad movie. 
And, and they really try. And so if you can convince them with the force of your writing, the force of anything, that you've got something that works, then they'll be thrilled about it too. Everyone's iconoclastic to a degree. They're all scared. But if you can show them a better way, then they'll be thrilled to take it. I mean, I, when I used to go for meetings, when I uh, started being a director, I would go in as a writer, kind of reasonably calm and reasonably casual and, you know, hopefully... But as a director, you have to go in and kind of go, all right, I've got this, who's with me? You have to kind of have more moxie and have more balls, you know what I mean? And so it would be hard to write something like that without directing and going, no, this is great, trust me. And, and that may be not something I'm entirely comfortable saying, but I can fake it. Because you have to, because there's a bunch of people believing in you, and you've got to pretend you believe in yourself. So is that <clears throat> your first piece of advice about how to become a director? You, you have to fake <clears throat> confidence. Yeah, a degree of energy. I mean, I would go in sort of laconically going, I don't know how we'll do this, but we'll find a way. We'll figure it out. And they'd be like, do you really want this? And I'm, like, I'm not sure I do. And so, yeah, you'd have to go in and kind of go, this. Everyone Who's with follows, me? You know, yeah. I've got this. You know, you've got to be... You know, it's yours. To, it's a benevolent dictatorship, and it's yours to give away. You can give it away once you've got there, but you have to. The first time I did, people called me governor, and I'd be like, don't say that, I could just call me all. <laughs> and actually, that's not, you know, and I remember interviewing director of photography and going, listen, I don't have a clue about lenses and anything, and I need you to do that stuff for me. And they just look at you and, like, that's not cool. Yeah. That's not right. You know, you've got <laughs> to actually, you know, just fake it a the little bit. You know, they want, anymore, there's a reason yeah. you're the director, and if they can't <laughs> believe in you, and actors certainly need to believe in you because they're making absolute gibbons of themselves, if not. Do you know what I mean? And so you've got to project a degree of energy and self-belief that you may not feel. Convince the producer that you know what you're doing. And convince the producer yeah. you know what you're doing, yeah. Um, more questions? Uh, have you ever dealt with any particularly difficult kind of actors or stars? And <coughs> do you have any strategies for kind of dealing with that when it does come up? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actor uh, number one. <laughs> actor number one. Actor number two. Um, it's different. And there's different kinds of difficult. I mean, you try really hard to avoid. There's difficult people that care. Do you know what I mean? Paddy Considine is not easy, but he's fabulous. It's all worth it. It's just because he cares passionately. Do you know what I mean? And if he goes off of you, it's because he's searching for the truth. And I'll take that every day. Difficult, where's my sushi, is a different thing. <laughs> And that's much more problematic because there's nowhere to solve that. Fresh sushi's not going to... It'll be something else the next day, do you know what I mean? And so it's in the casting process. You try and hang out. You try and... I mean, Mamma Mia, for example, they'd all it, they'd had such a lovely experience on the first one that it was incredibly important to me that all the new people that I cast would... You know, like, if the, you don't, you don't want to fake joy. That's ghastly. And so I went to meet... You know, I went to meet Cher. And so to check that she was... You know, it, actually, Cher's fine. Still alive. If she'd been a diva, that was fine, because <laughs> she's Cher, she can be anything. But she's lovely and warm and gorgeous. And so, but you just research, talk to people, and try really hard to avoid it. And if they're difficult, give a shit, then embrace that. That's great, work with them. The studio flew you out to meet Cher. No, they, they, Cher, was, um, Cher was a process. She was a challenge in the process, and then... Um, was but she then, someone else before she was and then, No, she was... Oh, I wrote the part for Cher nakedly. Well, not literally nakedly, although I would, have, <laughs> I would have done that too if it had got her. And then when you're casting, actually, you always need a plan B because the first person will turn you down. And so in order not to be depressed and wait a week, you always have to go, oh, you know, Matt Damon can't do it. Ben Affleck would be brilliant. <laughs> and then... But with Cher, I just refused to contemplate anyone else. And she made us wait a long time because she's Cher and she owns time. And so, and I just wouldn't, I wouldn't allow, it's just, there was like, there's other lists, and I was like, nope, it's her, it's definitely her. And then when she came, she came on set the first time, and she 
puts out a hand like this, and so you can only kiss it and it hurts <laughs> it. You can't, you can't shake that. It doesn't work. Um, but she's ace. She's fantastic. So, uh, yeah, they worked out. I'm sure that waiting was what persuaded her to... Oh, yeah, but then when she comes and she's sure, and then she opens her yeah. voice and that happens. So, I know, she's incredible. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Yes. Oh, yeah. um, I was just wondering if you have like a, a process for writing dialogue for characters that's sort of distinct, making them... Process of writing dialogue for characters? Um, just making each of your characters sort of distinct, sort of writing from like a like distinct voice. I think, I mean, I don't really, I never quite know where, I don't want to be so precious and go, oh my God, it's visited on me. But if you try listening, I used to write, I used to have a notebook for witty lines. And even almost kind of stand-up bits, you know, oh, I've got a bit about the Beatles' hair, I've got to get that in somewhere. And so when the two people are having dinner before whatever happens, he's going to be doing a comedy monologue about the Beatles' hair. But actually, probably what they're going to be talking about is what just happened to them, or what they want, or something more characterful. And so if you just listen, then generally that'll tell you the way forward. I mean, I'm really bad at writing jokes. I'd like punch up. I just did this thing and... Yeah, it's just the script that I've just written that's about to happen, I think, but like there's, someone has a first line and it's meant to be a comedy line, and that's disastrous to me. Whereas if someone else says something, then I can hopefully come up with a comedy response to it, you know what I mean? Because that would be truthful, and that comes from hearing the line before. So the only advice for dialogue is just to try and let it flow. Actors love it, when, and they find it easy to remember when the next thought is the logical next thought, and that comes from listening, I think, I hope. Hello. Put, but Hi. Do put your hands up if I'm missing people. Um, uh, could you pass that microphone along just for the, and we'll take this question here. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm interested in kind of writing as that space between the personal and the universal and kind of the private and the public. But do you ever worry that what you're writing is kind of not going to land because it's something that is so specific to the way that you see the world. Although I guess that is the most kind of well, wonderful thing. I, I remember being in a cinema watching The Full Monty in New York. And I, I'd been, I know uh, Simon who wrote it, and I, Pete, the director was my friend from the, the first thing that we'd done. And so I'd been part of it, and there was a bit in it where they, one of them explains the dance sequence by likening it to the off, Arsenal offside trap. And one of them goes, oh, I see you're Tony Adams, and we all step up at the right time. And it's, you know, it's a lovely bit of writing, but it's astonishingly specific. And I was like, that's cool. It's going to work great in you know, London. And I watched it in New York, and they didn't understand what the fuck anyone was talking yeah. about. But they, they knew that it was true. Do you know what I mean? They knew it's what those guys would be talking about. And so they listened with absolute pleasure to that little bit. And it made them like the movie more, even though it was more specific than they could understand. And it was a real lesson that they just write it to be the thing that it is, and don't try and second guess. If you write it truthful, then if you build it, they will come, I think. And if you write it truthfully, they'll, they'll appreciate that. So, um, yeah, I'd worry, I wouldn't worry about it. Cool. <laughs> Very good advice. Is there a microphone near you? Great. Hi. Hi. Governor. <laughs> um, uh, first of all, uh, a big thank you so much. You. Um, so you said that somebody told you at the start of, well, when you were starting off to write what you know, and that happened to be about ecstasy which was a thrill to hear. Um, would you say, therefore, that playing it safe is not a good idea when, you're, when you are writing and that you shouldn't try and tame your ideas because you think that they may not be 
they may be like rejected or might I be too so. dangerous. Well, I mean, Marigold's an example of, you know, I mean, as I tried to say, none of us had a clue. I mean, you just, just go with what you like, whether that feels safe or not. Just tell the truth. Basically, just tell the truth. Write the thing you want to write. Write the thing you don't think you've seen. Write the thing that no one else has done. But not in the kind of, oh my God, how can I be radical? Just write from yourself. No one else has seen the thing that you can write. No one else has written the thing that you can write. No one else has done that. Only you can do that. And so do that. And don't worry about whether it's safe or not or anything else. It's just yours. And hopefully it'll be ace. Is there a way in which, I mean, looking at your CV again, um, it did strike me that you've worked with Peter Catania on, he directed what? Did he directed Loved Up, the first thing I did. Loved yeah. Up, mm. which was the ecstasy yeah. film. Um, and, but he had his success when he went on to something that was real, but also was perceived as a comedy. Yeah. And I wondered whether that's true of your career too. Somehow you, you started out at ecstasy and yeah. date rape yeah. and all of these things. Now maybe, I don't know whether they were happy experiences, whether you felt you know, you'd really nailed it with them, <coughs> but it wasn't until you sort of found a way of adding to those bits of r real life that you wanted to express. I mean, I see. Comedy. To, yeah, I mean, I, don't, I, I try not to sort of look at my, you know, work in its totality as an oeuvre. It's just, you know, I just try and do the next thing. And I think that way madness lies if you kind of look back and analyze yourself. Yeah. But I, I, you know, I seem to have found a place where I'm writing yeah. things that are hopefully quite funny, but hopefully truthful as well. Yeah. Um, but I don't know that that'll necessarily be. The next thing, I don't think there's something you don't answer that question for that I'm burning to, you know, it's not like now I can do my art, now that I've done Mamma Mia. Going I can, back to ecstasy. I can go back to the art house project that I've always, you know, cherished. I mean, but I, I do, it seems to suit my, I mean, there's a truism that writers write, talk the way they write, most writers. And, um, uh, and it seems to me to suit my personality, the stuff that I, I do, and mm. hopefully, yeah, we'll keep going. Yes. Right there. That's behind. That's it. Hey, I was wondering, um, with your projects that you've considered your most successful or you've been the happiest with, have you found it the most useful to start with a really good plot idea or an event or a situation or with a really good character? I don't think I've ever started with a good character. All the characters I've thought of have always come after the plot or the situation. It's always who would be... And I never really know how I come up, you know, how anyone comes up with anything. But I remember Marigold was kind of mathematical because so many of the characters aren't actually in the book. I remember, for example, with Tom Wilkinson's character thinking, we need someone that's been in India before. We need someone that's not a virgin to the country. And so, okay, he would have been there. Why would he have been there? He's a retired judge and he's gay and he loves his love. And so it came out of his, the, the creation of his character came out of a kind of need for someone in the, in the plot. So generally story, I think, and then you try and find people that service that. But I think the story will get you there. I think if you're writing about a lead character, I mean, listen, there's Naked, for example, the great Mike Lee movie. You can build a film around an extraordinary character, and you know there are a few films better than that, but it's rare and difficult to do. Generally story will be what gets you there. Hi, yeah. Hi. Um, I was just wondering what and how the success of Mamma Mia 2 has changed your own opportunities in terms of the things that you're being offered, but also is there a sort of 
desire to try and do something smaller and more intimate and not have to try and compete with something as massive as, as, as that? A bit of both, I think, oddly. I mean, it's, it's um, uh, a bit of both. I mean, on one level, it was this giant thing, you know, and helicopters and eight cameras, and, you know, that's tremendous fun, being on, a, you know, being on boats and nonsense. We took speedboats around to the set every night and every, you know, every morning and every night. And we just had a blast. And we had time as well, which was extraordinary. It was a 79-day shoot. And so you, the feeling that, you know, if you're making a cheap movie, you have a day in a bookstore, that's your day in the bookstore. And whatever you get that day, that's what you've got. Do you know what I mean? And it, when 8 o'clock rolls around and you haven't got the scene, then it's your fault. When you're doing Mamma Mia, you have a feeling there'll be another day in the bookstore. Or they'll build a bookstore. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and that's a, that's a lovely place to be. So that's tempting. But on the other hand, you know, it'd be nice to, it's also nonsense and it's scary and the studio make it scary and the test screenings are scary. And, you know, it's nice to get away from that and make something more. So both, I think, is the wrong answer to that. Did, did you do reshoots? We didn't, I think we did, we did one day of reshoots. I, I screwed up the death of Meryl. It was, I really went for it. It had a very Scandinavian didn't beginning. Really die. No, it's just no. At the beginning of the movie, it had a very, it had a beautiful track in across the mountains, and it ended up in a close-up of Amanda's face as she sang "Mamma Mia" through her tears, and it was just too heavy. It was like, <laughs> audiences were like, "Yeah, no," <laughs> and Abba loved it. God bless him, and because um, they're Scandinavian, and uh, and audience did test were like, "Yeah, no." And so we reshot the beginning and made it a little bit more cheery and Amanda does invitations and it's all, you know, Meryl's still dead, but it's not quite so heavy. I thought we had to kind of own the disaster that was the, we were unfurling. Right. But just that. But just that, yeah. Yeah, yeah right. it, went out, it worked out. Yeah. Um, how are we doing? Any more questions? This one over there. Hi, thank you. I just wondered how you kept going um, when you were not knowing if uh, Marigold was going to be made, like mentally as well as financially. Um, you, do rely, you do rely on other people. I mean, you rely on people, you, you know, you ever, it's like in a you know, marriage. There are times where you feel good and times your partner feels good and you subconsciously or consciously bolster the other one. And you just... You know, you just keep going, and you rely on the energy of the director, the producer. It's tough when, I mean, director four, I mean, I meant it. When Graham called and said, so Marigold, I'm, I was totally serious. I was done, but I thought the film was done. And, you know, all respect to him for, you know, still trying. Um, but it's, there are times when it's harder than others, and sometimes you're the guy. Sometimes you're like, oh, I've got a good idea. But if you're curious, if you have a good idea, if there's one thing somebody says, you're like, oh, I could write that, then that'll do you. Do you know what I mean? You don't need much. You just need a sense of, I think John... There was one thing he said, and I was like, oh, I know how to write that scene. And that's when I kind of knew, even as he's talking, and I wanted to quit, and there were other things I wanted to do. Mm. I was just like, oh, no, I'm still in this. Yeah. Um, but, you, you know, just, uh, just a small thing, and you just keep going. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other, and sometimes it works out. That's the great thing about having a creative director on board, that sort yes. of collaboration. Yes, but yeah, and, and he's, John is he's gorgeous. He's, he's amazing, yeah. I don't know what time we are supposed to wind up. Are we um, around about this time, or are we? My daughter's are going to sleep, so <laughs> I think we need to. I've, she's heard all this before. Have, have we run out of questions? In which case, there's one down here. Thanks. I was just going to um, ask a bit more about your rewriting, and especially around dialogue, and if you 
you write it after you've heard the actors, or if you do get friends who are actors to read out the dialogue and you get ideas from that. If you, if you kind of try it out first, or is the shooting script kind of what you... I mean, I don't really try it out. I mumble as I write, so I say it every time. My family always know when I'm writing because they can hear me you know, under my breath. And so, um, but you, you're prepared to rewrite, obviously, if, if an actor has a problem or there's a great moment in... Exposition's really tricky for writers, and there's a moment in Marigold 2 where Judy Dench just has three lines of crap exposition, and she looks up and she goes, it's all around, it's all on set. And I go, yes, Judy, I'm here. And he goes, can we do any better than this? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, some, that's, that was a low. So, um, you know, sometimes you hear them and you think, oh, that's wrong. But, uh, you know, in general, hopefully, if you're okay, and sometimes they come up with better things, and that's brilliant. Richard Gere is an odd one because he'll just take the lines as a vague guideline for what he should be saying. And because, obviously, he's working with all these guys who are used to working with dead writers, and so they just take the crap that they're given and make it work. And so... Uh, he would just say random things and they would answer. So he would say, you know, it's a beautiful day. And they would go, half past four. <laughs> and, and it's like, Rich, you can say whatever you like, but you've got to, in the end, get to the question. <laughs> Sorry, I've come off your point. I don't, um, yeah, are you re if, if it's not working, you rewrite. Absolutely. But if it is, then you're lucky. And if you work with those guys, uh, then generally they make it work. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's a constant process of revision. And I'm so bad at the macro. So whenever I do rewrite, it's just the micro. I just look at, you know... I had a very happy hour with Bill Nye doing one speech, after which we changed one um to an R. You know, and that's heaven for us both. It was like sex. Um, we're going to make it two more questions, and one, one in the middle there. I hope you allow me to ask you a silly question. What's the best film you've seen recently or in the past you, you wish you've written it? I wish I could have written. Oh, I mean, almost everything. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you. Yeah, uh, Roma, is a, Roma is a masterpiece. Mm. I mean, I could never have written it for 14 different reasons. But um, Alfonso's talking tomorrow. Or the, I mean, it's an, if you haven't seen it, it's a masterpiece. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's the best one I've seen for a long time. It's extraordinary. Yeah. But in um, terms of, sorry, maybe in terms of things vaguely that I would hope to be able to do, uh, pretty much anything by Kenneth Lonergan. Uh, mm. Pretty much anything by Kenneth Lonergan. Manchester by the Sea uh, was a masterpiece, I think. But um, uh, You Can Count on Me it was a massive influence on my writing. Mm. Uh, I've only seen it once because it was so important to me. But it might not be as good as I remember it. But it's so understated and so underwritten and so beautiful. And that taught me a lot. So anything by him. Then I think we have um, exhausted to our allotted time. <laughs> and anyway... So please, will you um, join me in thanking the talented, uh, witty, and very, very successful old partner. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much.